Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. On Tuesday, Boris Johnson addressed Ukraine's parliament. Thank you very much, Mr... President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, President Zelensky, Mr. Chairman, it is a big honour for me to address you at this crucial moment in history. There were references to Churchill. This is Ukraine's finest hour. Promises of more weapons. We are sending many uh, thousands of weapons of every kind. And for the first time, an admission. We who are your friends must be humble about what happened in in 2014. Because Ukraine was invaded before, for the first time, and Crimea was taken from Ukraine. And the truth is that we were too slow to grasp what was really happening. And we collectively failed to impose the sanctions then that we should have put on Vladimir Putin. Slava Ukraini. Thank you. But a recent Sunday Times investigation found that for years, people inside government had warned of the threat Ukraine faced in 2014 and in the years since. Was the government just slow to grasp what was happening? Or did it knowingly look the other way? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, seven years and three prime ministers. How Britain ignored Ukraine's calls for weapons. I'm Jonathan Calvert. I'm the Insight Editor of The Sunday Times. And I'm George Arbuthnot and I'm the Deputy Editor of the Insight team. The Insight Team is renowned for its hard-hitting investigations in the Sunday Times. For their latest, they interviewed ministers, MPs, Ukrainian officials, civil servants and academics. And those sources described years of inertia within the British government in its handling of Russia, which they believe gave Putin a gambler's confidence that he could get away with almost anything. After the Russian army first rolled into Ukraine in 2014, the British minister in charge of fielding requests from Kiev for military assistance was the defence secretary, Michael Fallon. So, yeah, so I, I, I spoke to Sir Michael Fallon, who was the defence secretary from 2014 to 2017. When uh, there was the first invasion of Ukraine in 2014, he was the British minister who was in charge of fielding requests from Kiev for military assistance, which he said were, were made repeatedly. But he says he very reluctantly had to keep saying no. He says he bitterly regrets that. And 
he and the Ministry of Defence wanted to arm Ukraine, but he says they were blocked by the cabinet from, from sending arms there. We can see that in public at the time, David Cameron, who was the then Prime Minister, was insisting that the Ukraine crisis could only be solved by diplomacy, and therefore it was unnecessary to provide arms to Ukraine. And Fallon says that that was because many at the top of government feared that arming Ukraine would antagonise Putin and may invoke a, a further invasion of the country or even attract hostility to, to the UK. I quote Fallon, he said, some in the cabinet felt extremely strongly that we should do nothing to further provoke Russia. I felt that was absurd. The Russians didn't need any provoking. They were already there sending people across the Ukrainian border. I mean, that's remarkable. And remarkable to think that the cabinet was so uninterested. Yes, apparently it was, it was kind of groundswell within the cabinet who just felt that they just <laughs> they were just fearful of the consequences of antagonising Putin. There was also strong voices, including, we understand, from within the army as well. The army looked at his, his past actions in other countries where they hadn't been particularly honest in, in the peace talks and they hadn't really gone anywhere and Putin had just done whatever he wanted and they felt strongly that he would respond to strength and action rather than, rather than talks. And for Michael Fallon, you know, if he's being personally lobbied by the Ukrainians... I mean, how did that feel at the time? Did he have any sense that this could get worse? Yeah, well, the Ukrainians were extremely concerned about a further invasion. And obviously, there was ongoing fighting in, in the Donbass throughout this period. Fallon says he was repeatedly asked for weapons by Poroshenko, who was the then Ukrainian president. Fallon would go to Ukraine once a year because we were providing some training in the country to the armed forces, but it was very explicitly non-lethal training. Fallon says there was a lot of pressure. And, and so we, we, on, on these trips to Kiev, he would he would see Poroshenko and the foreign minister and defence ministers, and they, they would be begging Britain for for more weapons. But he um, he just couldn't get the support from it from uh, at the top of government. And, and that continued. You know, Cameron left office in 2016 after the, the Brexit referendum, and Theresa May then came in as well as Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary. And the policy continued. And in 2017, Boris Johnson reaffirmed the position that only non-lethal equipment would be sent to Ukraine in, in Parliament in, in the summer. But what you're seeing from the UK, and by the way, we are uh, contributing to the effort to, uh, to stave off that Russian military meddling with a non-lethal equipment that we have agreed to uh, send to... Uh, that we have agreed to, to send to... To Ukraine, and so, yeah, he he was a vocal advocate of not sending weapons to Ukraine at, at that time. And did you get a sense from the people you spoke to? I know you've spoken to other cabinet sources of whether things changed later. Was there still a reluctance to arm the, the Ukrainians? Yeah, I mean, the, the policy con con continued right through. So, in 2018, the Trump administration actually decided that they would change tack and they, they would start providing anti-tank missiles to the, to the Ukraine. And they started selling them hundreds of them. So for four years before the war, America has, has been arming them. And, and, and the reason for that, according to our, our sources in cabinet, was because they recognised that Ukraine was having no joy in the war in the Donbass and not making progress. And therefore, the Americans wanted to help them kick 
the uh, Russian separatists out, out of their country and and return uh, Ukrainian sovereign lands. But Britain did not take the same stance. And indeed, when Boris Johnson in the summer of 2017 reaffirmed our policy not to provide lethal weapons, he expressed the view that the non-lethal kit that Britain was providing would allow uh, Ukraine to win out uh, in their struggle against, against the Russians. Did you get a sense of what we could have been providing during that period that would have meant Ukraine was better prepared by the time the invasion came? Well, uh, our source in cabinet said, and I quote, we could have given them anti-tank missiles, we could have provided other types of ammunition to deal with tanks, we could have provided a lot more intelligence, we could have provided more right across the board, which is what they wanted. It was just nervousness on the British side that Britain would be singled out and end up in a situation of conflict with Russia, which we wanted to avoid. Did you get a sense of, for Boris Johnson, you know, why he was so reluctant to take action against the Russians? It was a controversial policy for, from the beginning, particularly within the Conservative Party. And in 2015, there was significant criticism from both sides of the House of Commons about the refusal to sell weapons to Ukraine. And it's important to, to be explicit about that. U- Ukraine was not asking for gifts of weapons. All they wanted to do was was be allowed to buy weapons. You know, during that this whole period, Britain was selling weapons to countries like Saudi Arabia, who have been accused of um, a whole series of war crimes in Yemen. So for many conservatives, it's, it's extraordinary that we weren't happy to sell weapons to, to Ukraine who'd, who'd, who'd been invaded by an aggressor. We were looking at some of the debates um, in February 2015. The Conservative ex-Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, for example, said that the failure to give defensive equipment to a country under threat because it might provoke a further reaction from Russia was simply a bully's charter that is already discredited by history. Lord Davies of Stamford, um, who was a former diplomat in Moscow and a Labour defence minister, told the House of Lords around that time that the West's reaction to the invasion of Crimea had been derisory and would almost certainly encourage Putin to come back for a bigger bite elsewhere. So um, his words obviously proved prophetic. Another strong advocate for sending weapons to Ukraine prior to the invasion was John Whittingdale. He was chair of the all-party parliamentary group for Ukraine and in that role had done a series of visits to Ukraine, including the the Donbass eastern region where where the current Russian offensive is ongoing, and also to Mariupol. On his visit to Mariupol, he'd, in 2018, one of the Ukrainian commanders he'd spoken to had actually said they were expecting a, Russian, a further Russian invasion any day. They predicted that Mariupol would, would be first in line, in line for the attack. Wittendahl got back from his trip, uh, secured an urgent debate in, in Parliament, and he said that failing to adequately support Ukraine in its resistance to the, to the Russian incursion was reminiscent of the the ill-fated deal in which Neville Chamberlain had allowed Nazi Germany to annex large parts of Czechoslovakia in 1938, uh, which obviously had had disastrous consequences. So, on a par with appeasement. Yeah, and so there were real siren calls coming from within the Conservative Party about appeasing Putin. Um, And they, they were directly drawing comparisons between him and Hitler. But unfortunately, they fell on deaf ears at the time. And, um, Certainly, Liam Fox 
was very critical when we spoke to him. He said it, it was very clear what Putin's pattern of behaviour was and it was very clear that Ukraine would be next. There was no logic whatsoever in saying, well, we can't give the Ukrainians the ability to defend themselves in case of provoking Putin. It was a policy that was based on hope, not, not experience. And did you get a sense of how much, you know, the, the government taking its eye off the ball or not acting fast enough, how much it's had an impact on, on the situation in Ukraine now? Yeah, I mean, the, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, was actually speaking about this in, only a few weeks ago. Um, he was very critical of the West for failing to arm Ukraine earlier and saying that many, many lives would have been saved if they had done so. He said, if we had access to all the weapons we need, which our partners have and which are comparable to the weapons used by the Russian Federation, we would have already ended this war. You've been looking at the government's relationship with with Russia in particular. In recent weeks, after the invasion of Ukraine, the Russian government has said that Boris Johnson is the most anti-Russian of the Western leaders. That wasn't always the case, was it? Take us back to 2016. Back in 2016, Boris had just become the new foreign secretary. Still a little stunned, perhaps, from the surprise of the night before. Mr Johnson, you're going to stop and have a word? An unusually silent Boris Johnson, Britain's new Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs. It is the appointment of Boris Johnson as Foreign Secretary who campaigned to leave the European Union that has caused the most surprise. In May, Johnson accused the EU of pursuing a similar aim to Adolf Hitler in trying to create a superstate, angering European allies. He had successfully brought Brexit. He was the figurehead of the Vote Leave campaign. The reward was that he was made Foreign Secretary. One of his first jobs was to deal with the difficult problem of Russia. The Russians, unusually, were excited that Boris Johnson had taken over as foreign secretary. They saw him as someone they could do business with, somebody who might repair the kind of fractured Russian-British relationships which stretched back to the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko in 2006 through all the problems over Syria with all the Russian-backed bombing of people and civilians in Syria. Whereas his predecessor, Philip Hammond, had described Russia as the greatest threat to the world, the Russians thought that Boris was actually somebody who might be able to repair relations with them. And the other thing worth mentioning is that Putin seems to be a great fan of Brexit. He was not a fan of the EU because he felt it was encroaching on the countries that were bordering Russia. So obviously he, he was very keen on Boris's great achievement, which was to get the Brexit referendum through. He would welcome, and his spokesman would articulate this, that they, were, they would certainly welcome Boris's appointment as uh, foreign secretary. So the Kremlin, they were clearly welcoming the new foreign secretary with warm words. There was a lot of promise in, in how they saw the relationship working out. What was Boris Johnson saying about the Russians? What was his stance? 
And Johnson was quite keen to have a constructive relationship with the Kremlin. I think he, uh, when he first got into the job, he thought it was possible actually to deal with the Russians. So about three weeks after he took over, he had a telephone call with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and told them that he wanted to build a constructive relationship. And later, the Russian foreign ministry said that the conversation had been about normalizing relations with Russia. So... Johnson was keen to um, have a policy where they would be critical of Russia and they would they would point out the difficulties, but they would deal with Russia. One of the other things the Russians would have liked was that during the the Brexit campaign, it was it had been two years since the first invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces when they they'd seized Crimea. Back in 2014. Back in 2014. Yeah. And Boris had been in full campaigning mode, seeking to do down the EU. He actually went so far as to blame the EU for Russia's invasion of Ukraine, saying that the EU was an anti-democratic force for instability. God, that's um, remarkable now. I think everyone's sort of forgotten <laughs> that. What was his what was his um, he seemed to be argument. Um, he, he, he was talking about the kind of the plans for a potential army for the EU which did create kind of horror at the time the former Swedish prime minister Carl Bildt said that Johnson was acting as an apologist for Putin and wow. so it was a highly controversial uh, statement and as he became foreign secretary you know clearly he had decided he wanted to build bridges do we know where the rest of the foreign office was in terms of how they viewed Russia, what sort of information would he have been hearing? Our understanding is that at the time, Foreign Office officials and UK's defence attaché in Moscow were increasingly ringing alarm bells about the government of President Putin. And they were giving advice that it was almost futile to try and repair relations with his regime. I mean, one very senior Foreign Office civil servant told us that they just viewed Putin as not really being interested in engaging in any meaningful diplomatic relations. Any attempt of diplomacy was all about legitimizing things that Russia had done with impunity over the years. So a charm offensive wouldn't bring them on board, but might just make it look like they'd behaved perfectly reasonably. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think the, the key calculus for Putin was that his aggressive foreign policy played very well to his domestic audience within Russia. So he was seeking to continue that and, and push it. And as long as he didn't get much pushback or deterrence from Western powers, he was looking to uh, push that as much as he could. And if he could do a hostile act and then become mates of them all again afterwards, you know, <laughs> it, seemed to be the, it seemed to be a pretty good scenario for him. Yeah, you can see how that leads to bigger invasions later on. At that time, back in 2016, when Boris Johnson became Foreign Secretary, this was very soon after the Brexit referendum. And already, within the first few months, really, people were starting to ask questions about whether there had been any Russian involvement in that referendum. What was Boris Johnson's view? What was the government's stance on it? Yeah, there was a Times story in November 2017, uh, which was quite a groundbreaking story, uh, which found that more than 150,000 Russian Twitter accounts, many of which had been very pro-Putin um, and had been putting out Putin propaganda in the past, had weighed in on the Brexit referendum just days before the vote. 
That story was kind of the first evidence, really, that Russia allegedly had been attempting to influence the referendum result. Johnson was asked about this soon after in a select committee hearing. And when asked whether he'd seen any interference in the Brexit referendum, he said, Uh, I haven't seen uh, any evidence of that. Uh, You seem uncertain about whether you've seen it or you haven't. Is this another of your confirm or can't confirm? No, no, I I, I can can confirm uh, to you, Mr. Bryant, that I I don't... Think I've got a, a, Mr. McDonald's has written no. So you don't uh, think no, the no, Russians I haven't seen it. I haven't seen not a sausage yet. And you, and you yet. don't. So you don't think yet. the Russians play any, played any role or sought to play any role in the elections? I don't know about sought to play, but I think they've, as, as far as I know, they have, they have played no role. He looks as if he's unsure of himself, doesn't he? He looks at his assistant to his left and then says, "No, I haven't seen any any evidence of it. Not a sausage yet." The problem, obviously, for Johnson on this is that he was the victor in terms of the Vote Leave campaign. Mm. Any suggestion that somehow the Russians had helped throw it in favour of of Vote Leave would not be very comfortable for them. From that moment on, actually, I think you find that Johnson is very reluctant to accept that the Russians did interfere in, in the Brexit election. And that, that's certainly what our senior foreign office source said they even said that the Foreign Office officials were actually scared of raising it really? with ministers because they knew it was such a touchy subject. And it was the reason that they were in office was because their side had won. They didn't raise it because they knew the Brexiteers had their P45 in their office drawer. Coming up. He ended up by saying, I'm, I'm delighted to say that in spite of all the difficulties, I believe 300 Bentleys were sold to Russia this year. It'd be interesting to know how many of the Bentleys were sold to uh, his oligarchs. But first. I'm Christina Lamb. I'm chief foreign correspondent of the Sunday Times, and I mostly cover conflict around the world. I particularly focus on what happens to women in war. The reason that we can do this kind of reporting is thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. So please subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. So you've got a foreign secretary who very senior people working in the foreign office feel they can't raise the issue of Brexit and whether there was any Russian influence because they might be sacked for doing so. Around this time, what people are able to see, because that's the information that's only just emerging, what people could see was effectively the charm offensive. This is when we first have a trip to Moscow. Tell me about that back in 2017. 
Yeah, I mean, the um, the trip from Moscow had been kind of on the cards ever since Boris had become foreign secretary and you know, the Russians felt that they could deal with him and, and he was keen to have a kind of normalised relationship with Russia once again. Smiles for the cameras, but not enough to avoid a clash between the British Foreign Secretary and his Russian counterpart in Moscow. The first UK Foreign Minister to visit Russia in just over five years. Boris Johnson met uh, Sergei Lavrov. It, by all accounts, was a bit of a kind of frosty occasion. We can't ignore those difficulties. We can't pretend that they uh, do not exist and we don't share a common perspective on events in Ukraine or on uh, the Western Balkans or as Prime Minister uh, Theresa May has said on uh, Russian activities in, in cyberspace. Johnson read out a list of the difficulties that Britain had with Russia. How did that uh, go down? Not very well. I mean, Lavrov then gave him some sort of lecture about not airing their differences in public. Me, I don't recall any aggressive actions that Russia has made against the UK, he said. We've never accused London of anything. And on the contrary, we've heard a lot of accusations, even insults made by the UK towards Russia. But nonetheless, Johnson did emerge from it saying that, you know, he was very optimistic that Russia could still do business with the UK. And I know that in spite of the difficulties that we have between us, as you rightly say, Sergei, there, is, there are signs of economic progress. And I'm delighted to say that uh, there are increasing exports of British kettle crisps to Russia. And in spite of all the difficulties, I believe 300 Bentleys uh, were sold uh, this year in, uh, in Russia. Uh, a sign of progress. So things are difficult. So they were kind of, <laughs> at the time, they seemed to be getting on long fine in terms of, you know, kind of agreeing that they would do business. It'd be interesting to know how many of the Bentleys were sold to uh, his oligarchs. Yes, <laughs> yes. If crisps and Bentleys, the sales of, are sort of the high watermark <laughs> of this relationship, it did reach what should have been really a watershed. Take us back to March 2018 in Salisbury. On a sunny afternoon, a man and a younger woman were found foaming at the mouth and falling in and out of consciousness on a park bench in the centre of Salisbury. Counterterrorism forces have descended on a small town after police discovered a couple unconscious this on Saturday. They have been identified as 66-year-old Colonel Sergei Skripal. Uh, he was a former Russian military intelligence officer and his, and his daughter, Yulia, Colonel Skripal was known to Britain's intelligence services because he'd been released in a spy swap with Moscow four years earlier. He'd previously served eight years in a Russian jail for spilling secrets to the West that revealed the identity of his spy colleagues. And so this appears to have been a state-sponsored assassination attempt after all. Order. Statement. The Prime Minister. It is now clear that Mr Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. Yulia had flown in from Moscow the day before and had been closely followed by two Russian men from the Russian intelligence service. The most immediate response was to expel 23 Russian diplomats, which was kind of the, 
the it's like the old Cold War, really. That, uh, that's how you express displeasure. <laughs> that's how you express, yeah. Send their diplomats home. And of course, the, the, the Russians refused to accept that they were responsible for the Salisbury attacks and... In fact, they, they called Theresa May, the Prime Minister, insane. The British Prime Minister Theresa May has made several statements over the past few days in Parliament. They were completely insane accusations against the Russian Federation, against our country, against our nation. I mean, we'd already been through all this with the case of Alexander Litvinenko because mm. an inquest had found that it was probable that um, Putin had ordered the attacks. And I think there are very few people who, who don't believe that, that the use of radioactive chemicals to yeah. kill people in the UK could have been done unless it was sanctioned by Putin. And it's interesting that you mentioned Litvinenko because there was a sense that by the time the Skripal poisoning happened, this was the second attack on UK soil and all we did was send 23 diplomats home. Was the UK response strong enough? How did it compare to other countries? Well, yeah, so there, there were no further measures uh, or, or significant measures beyond that, apart from uh, we, we said that we wouldn't send our ministers or our members of our royal family to the, to the World Cup, which in terms of uh, trying to act as a deterrent to Vladimir Outrage Putin... Outrage and diplomatic circles. Yeah, I mean, he might have actually been quite pleased about that, he knows. <laughs> um, <But> also, <laughs> a year later, once the assassins were identified, they did sanctioned the two assassins and the military intelligence organisation, the GRU, didn't they? Later on. But that was it. That was in contrast to the response across the Atlantic. Donald Trump has received much criticism for being too soft on Vladimir Putin Mm. in his words. He was actually imposing sanctions on the oligarchs after the Salisbury attacks, which was something that Britain did not do. And we have started to do a bit of that now, but why weren't we doing it back then? Why weren't we doing it after the Skripal poisoning? The, the reasons that sources within the Foreign Office and within Whitehall have given us are, are quite varied. It's, it's alleged that Johnson would have been aware that this would have put the spotlight on Roman Abramovich, who through his ownership of Chelsea Football Club had become a popular figure in many parts of London. The other reason it was given was more petty. Popularity of of an oligarch who owns a football club sounds pretty petty. Well, this is even worse. So as a senior source in the Foreign Office told us, was that Johnson's relationship with Tom Tugendhat, who was the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Mm. was very poor. Tugendhat had given Johnson a hard time um, when he was being quizzed at uh, Foreign Affairs Committee hearings. And as we understand it, Johnson had taken a dislike to him. And we were told that would have also been in Johnson's mind when he was deciding whether or not to take up the Foreign Affairs Select Committee's recommendations. Um, just just a personal dislike <laughs> of the chairman. And also, to a certain extent, and I think you, can, and you could look at it from David Cameron through to Theresa May to Boris Johnson. They saw the oligarchs as creating wealth in the city of London, they brought money into the country, all of those sort of things. And it was a happy coincidence that they would also give money to the Conservative Party so that in that year, 2018, Russian-linked organisations or individuals gave £700,000 to the Conservative Party. And and as we were looking at it, what was quite clear was that over those years, as you, you go up 2017, 2018, 2019, 
the donations that the Conservative Party received from Russian-linked entities increases during that period. And so given all those problems, I think they probably just found it easier just not to do anything. So in 2018, the Conservatives are still taking money from rich Russians. They're not doing anything to sanction oligarchs, whereas in America, they are being much stricter. They are, they, you know, there are serious measures in place. At the same time in America, they also start to arm Ukraine. Mm. Tell me a bit about that. We did speak to Ukraine's ambassador to, to the UK, Vadim Prostyko, who was sort of described the frustration that Ukraine felt at that time. And Prostyko told us, you know, politicians didn't want to waste their relationships with Russia helping a nation which they didn't think would be able to use their weapons effectively. Obviously, as it's turned out, the Ukrainians have been able to use uh, their weapons very effectively. And Prostyko told me that he remembers Ukraine being compared to Afghanistan at that time. And obviously, when the Western countries withdrew from Afghanistan and the, the Taliban attacked, the Afghan army crumbled and, and a lot of the equipment that they'd been provided was lost. But they felt that they would be able to put up, put up a fight at the time and, and were making that argument. So it was an opportunity lost, really, to do something about Ukraine. Well, providing weapons to Ukraine much earlier would have allowed them to build up their stockpiles Mm. and also train their army intensively and and thoroughly in how to use them. We've obviously supplied weapons in the last few months, but it's been a scramble. And also it's been a mad rush trying to train up their troops. Prosecco did say, obviously, that it would have certainly helped their preparations if they'd been able to have those weapons earlier. And in the last few years, as tensions have ratcheted up, there has been a little bit more scrutiny about Russia's role, particularly in British public life. Parliamentary committees in particular have been focusing in on this. Tell me a bit about them. The first of all actually came out of the concern about all the cyber attacks that Russia was accused of undertaking. And as a result, the Intelligence and Security Committee decided to look at the Russian threat in general, but part of its remit was to look into allegations that the Russian interference of British politics related to both the Brexit and the Scottish referendums. Which, of course, was quite incendiary, really, because you suddenly had Russia mixing Mm. with the, the big issue of the time, which was kind of dividing the nation. And so it was kind of, it was a very delicate report it would take quite a long time, and it uh, it began in 2017, but it wouldn't actually report for at least another two years. Tell us about that. What was happening? The Intelligence and Security Committee report was initiated in 2017, and by 2019, it... Uh, it was going through its final stages. Because the thing about the Intelligence Committee is that it it has the ability to take evidence from the security services. So so MI6 and MI5 make contributions to it. Um, So it's quite, I mean, it's it's access to information is quite interesting. All its meetings are done behind closed doors, so you don't know what's happening. So at the end, when the the MPs produced their report in 2019, and I think they'd kind of got, they'd got a, a completed version by about March that year. The report has had to go through lots of redaction, you know, toing and froing, you know, this MI6 saying you can't say this and them kind of taking this and several bits and pieces out. But the finalised report itself was handed to Boris Johnson in October, late October 2019. Mm. And 
all the other reports that that committee has produced are, are just published almost instantly, within days. This was not published for days and then weeks and then and then months. The government said initially that it needed further redaction, but the chairman of the committee was the former Attorney General, Dominic Grieve. He says there were no further redactions, and when he read the final report, when it finally came out, there weren't any. So uh, he, he basically accuses the Prime Minister of lying about that. And he would say that the reason it was withheld was because they didn't want the report to be released before the election, which happened at the end of 2019, partly because it had this incendiary element to it. Again, you know, Boris Johnson had been had taken leadership of the party and had, um, was fighting an election on the fact that he was going to deliver Brexit. And the report was, was believed to contain accusations of Russian interference in, in the Brexit vote. Which would and be so huge. Yeah. Which, and so it was, became too much of a hot potato. But even after, even after the election, uh, it still wasn't published. And of course, we then went into the pandemic. I mean, it's kind of the world changed. And it was not until July 2020 that the government decided to release the report. After all of this toing and froing on it, it said very little about Brexit. Mm. It seems that the intelligence services had decided not to do much work on the subject at all. You see in the committee's report almost an angry um, statement that, you know, we only got five paragraphs from the intelligence services on the interference of, of the Brexit vote. So what the committee did then do was they demanded that the government should now go back and reinvestigate whether there was any Russian interference in, in the Brexit vote. But uh, the government was very reluctant to do that. And, no, and no, no sign of that happening. No sign of that happening. They completely battered it away. Meanwhile, Russia was becoming more and more belligerent. I mean, take us back to late 2020. We were all sort of quite distracted by the pandemic. What was happening in Ukraine? So the, the conflict in the country's east... They were worried about um, their increasing concerns that Putin would invade. The ex-minister we spoke to told us that Britain was just sitting on its hands, still not wanting to offend the Kremlin, that we didn't want to give the Kremlin an excuse to invade because we felt that giving the Ukrainians a lot of, load of lethal kit might make Putin want to nip it in the bud. So we were kind of wringing our hands. The source told us that the Ukrainian ambassador, Vadim Prostyko, had been trying to secure a meeting with Dominic Raab, the, mm. the new foreign secretary. But Raab was too busy to give him an audience. And apparently Prostyko was, he was kind of, he was quite frustrated by it. I did, I did ask Prostyko about it and he was quite diplomatic and said that I was trying to reach out to one of your politicians it was not easy. I understand that your secretaries are quite busy people. You know, the pandemic was raging. There were other priorities, but it was it was hard for them to politically get the, the bandwidth for people to engage with them. That has obviously changed hugely now. So at what point did we do something to help Ukraine? So in the middle of last year, the government did agree to help the Ukrainians rebuild its navy which had been severely weakened by Russia's seizure of 
the key Crimean naval base called Sevastopol in 2014, we agreed to build eight new warships, which was a, a kind of sea change in the in their approach because this was going to be lethal weapons being provided to the Ukraine, albeit for their navy rather than the anti-tank missiles they were, they were most seeking because of the the huge land border with, with Russia. But unfortunately, it was too little too late because the warships were not built in time for the Russian invasion. The Ukrainian ambassador told us that they had to scrap the project. He did lament that Ukraine would have been much better prepared if there had been a more swift response to its pleas for defensive weapons. And I suppose with the warships, that would really have made a difference in, in Odessa now. That's right. It, it would have done. Too little, too late. It kind of took the mobilisation of uh, 100,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian border for the, the government to suddenly jump into action. It was exactly the kind of focus that two parliamentary reports have been calling for. Suddenly... The Prime Minister, who you remember at the time, was bombarded from all sides because of what was happening in with Downing Street and parties, could take up the cause, and they did go after oligarchs. But it is amazing what could be done once there was suddenly a political will behind it. The Insight team put this story to the government. In a statement, a spokesman said, the UK has been front and centre of the international response to Putin's barbaric invasion of Ukraine, building an international coalition which continues to provide unprecedented financial, military and diplomatic support to President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people. The Prime Minister was one of the first world leaders to raise concerns about Russian hostilities. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Sunday Times Insight Team, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot. You can find all of their investigations at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print on Sundays. The producers today were James Shield and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.